0: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. On tonight's podcast, you'll hear things about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the goal of better informing the general public about mental health issues as well as reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And thanks again for joining in. This podcast was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, November the 18th, 2015. And we're just a week and a day before Thanksgiving. Wow. The time does fly, doesn't it? Um, I want to open tonight's podcast by uh, just sharing... uh, my own personal sorrow, as I'm sure you all uh, would agree with the horrific attacks that took place this past week in Paris. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, I'm sure we all agree our hearts go out to everyone who lost loved ones in these vicious, unspeakable attacks, and uh, those uh, who survived. Whether they have physical wounds or just psychological wounds, uh, we hope and pray for their speedy recovery, uh, as we do for the comfort of those who lost loved ones. Um, No mental health angle as far as the shooters themselves. It's clear they're just sociopathic terrorists, but I will say there is a significant mental health angle where it concerns watching the TV coverage of events like that. Uh, I just want to remind people who have severe post-traumatic stress, be it from combat or other violence that they've experienced in their lives, uh, I would strongly encourage you not to indulge yourself in watching coverage of the Paris attacks on television Uh, and if you have been doing so I urge you to stop Um, it's not like I think anyone should just hide from news like that or choose not to be aware of it or choose not to think it matters to them but uh, as someone whose efforts are all about promoting good mental health. Uh, I know that for patients like that, watching the TV coverage with the images uh, depicting the horrible violence that took place there and the loss of life and trauma uh, is just going to make someone with severe PTSD from violence and trauma feel worse. Uh, So please either don't watch it or just limit it Uh, see one report on it and then shut the TV off or change the channel. Because the problem with media coverage of events like that is that it just keeps going on and on and on. The same images are repeated over and over again and uh, the same information is rehashed and discussed by so-called experts and talking heads and you know, it's all well and good for the sake of informing us about events that take place elsewhere in the world. Uh, but for those with PTSD, please spare yourself. Well, first up, as far as new topics for tonight's podcast, I saw this article. It says the jury is still out on omega-3s for depression. Uh, omega-3s refers to uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which are a component of uh, and found in fish oil. And so fish oil capsules have been a supplement that have been very popular, recommended very widely, studied for a lot of different potential things they may help with, and unfortunately most of the time found not to be too terribly helpful. Uh, When it comes to preventing dementia, fish oil supplements won't do it. When it comes to preventing heart attack or stroke, also they won't do it. And studies about fish oil and depression have been equivocal. There are some studies that show they're helpful, others not. Uh, Personally, I think that a lot of the mixed results are because of how the studies were done, and maybe also unreasonable expectations. Uh, I think thinking that fish oil might prevent or alleviate dementia was a bit too much, and it's not at all surprising that that didn't work. not even sure why they attempted to look at that, honestly. But as far as the other things, looking at cardiovascular health, um, fish oil... May have the property of lowering the worst subfraction of LDL cholesterol, that's your, your bad cholesterol, the one that uh, is a, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And it's a well known fact that in countries which have the highest per capita rates of fish consumption, they have the lowest per capita rates of bipolar depression. Uh, Now, so that's bipolar depression, which is in people who have both the mania and the depression, not just depression. Uh, But still, does that mean it would be bad for people with just ordinary garden-variety depression who are not bipolar? In other words, unipolar depression? Uh, I personally don't think it would be a bad idea. But why is it then then, that their studies have shown mixed results? Well, let's take a look at this one. It'll be an uh, illustrative example, I think, of this issue. Uh, this study is a review of the information. It's out there, and it concludes that there is not enough evidence to support over-the-counter omega-3 fatty acid supplements as a treatment for depression. Uh, so let's first get very specific about what they're saying. They're saying, okay, fish oil capsules, not a treatment for depression. Well, who said they would be? I mean, that's a little bit ambitious, isn't it? All right, let's go on. So they found that a number of other reviews investigating the impact of omega-3 fatty acids on depression and depressive disorders have also been conducted. And all of these also find discrepancies between studies and inconsistencies in findings and essentially find it difficult to draw convincing conclusions. All right, so they're saying the evidence doesn't support it as being a treatment for depression, but they're also saying that if you weigh all the evidence, it's hard to draw any firm conclusions. And uh, the authors note, quite pointedly that all reviews also conclude with the need for further evidence. So, fine, it's it's, uh, easy enough to conclude there's not enough evidence. The new review included 26 randomized controlled trials involving almost 1,500 adults with major depressive disorder. The trials compared people who were given omega-3 fatty acid capsules and people given placebo pills. Now, there was only one study that compared omega-3 capsules to an antidepressant medication. Uh, All the rest of them, presumably, were just compared with either no treatment or placebo. Now, while people who took the omega-3 capsules did report lower levels of depression symptoms compared to those who took inert placebos, there was only a small difference that would likely not be meaningful for most people. As for side effects and adverse events, they may be increased for some people taking the omega-3 capsules, but the results varied widely from study to study. The quality of evidence from each study was low to very low, according to the author's ratings. In one study, the one that included antidepressants as a comparative treatment, there was no difference between the omega-3 fatty acid supplements and antidepressants in terms of treating depressive symptoms. So taken as a whole, uh, the results seem promising but not conclusive. It's not clear why or how the omega-3 fatty acids naturally found in fish oils would improve depressive symptoms, although, and this is very important in my opinion, inflammation and cell communication changes, among other pathways, have been suggested. In other words, it may be that the anti-inflammatory properties that omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil have are what's helpful because we know that in states of depression uh, there are increased circulating levels of inflammatory proteins in the blood. And then also they talk about facilitating communication among brain cells. Uh, The fish oil, the uh, omega-3 fatty acids in the fish oil have components that may facilitate communication between brain cells because of how they integrate themselves into brain cell membranes now one of the problems with understanding results from clinical trials in general is they are looking for an average effect while many experts agree that the ideal approach would be to figure out which subsets of depressed patients could benefit from particular treatments. An approach the National Institutes of Health is called personalized medicine. I could not agree with that more. So maybe fish oil doesn't help the sum total of all patients with depression, but maybe there is a subset that could be identified who would benefit. And maybe specific characteristics of that subset could be teased out to say, oh, all right, well, you're one of those folks who has depression, who might benefit from fish oil, so you should take them. Whereas another person might be, well, you don't fit into that subset, so don't bother taking them. And we'll talk more about who that subset might be when we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
1: I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, patient safety radio, heard on America's web radio every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Now you and your loved ones can stay safe from little-known health care and hospital hazards. Join me Thursdays at 9 a.m. or listen to my podcasts on americaswebradio.com. For more information, visit speakupandstayalive.com. don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power america on butterflies rainbows and pixie dust i'm marita noon get the truth about energy on my show america's voice for energy only on america's web radio
3: you're listening to americaswebradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening
0: welcome back to psychiatry today this is your host Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, we're talking about a review that found that omega-3s are not conclusively helpful for depression. Now, uh, the study authors conclude that at this stage, we don't yet know how to predict which depressed patients will respond to omega-3 supplements. But they remain one potential treatment that may be worth trying. Both doctors and patients should keep an open mind about this topic until more evidence of higher quality can be obtained. Like we talked about before the break, the reviewers for this article found that not all of the evidence was of good quality. Now, most omega-3 supplements are composed of natural oils, so there is no evidence to suggest that the results of the trials would have been different if the omega-3 fatty acids came from eating fish rather than taking capsules. Uh, Of course, as with any uh, active nutritional component, it is better to get it from your diet But it's reassuring to know that the capsules should work just as well. Here's another angle, the cost. A bottle of 50 to 100 capsules of omega-3 fish oil supplement costs between $10 and $20 at most drugstores. And if you belong to uh, a big box shopping discounter like Sam's or Costco or BJ's, what have you, Um, You can get quite a bit more than 50 to 100 capsules for that kind of money. Now, they uh, conclude, the the authors of this review paper, that more research is needed to assess the potential positive and negative effects of using these supplements to treat major depressive disorder. Many possible treatments for depression are currently being investigated, But the evidence for many of these treatments is still incomplete. So the situation for fish oil is certainly not unusual. Now let me say this. I think that it's just too hard to ignore the overwhelming benefit that fish oil has and eating fish in the diet has for preventing bipolar depression. And whether you have bipolar or not, I mean, that is the most difficult type of depression we psychiatrists see. Uh, So I have to think there's something more to it than what the research finds, which is admittedly very flimsy, if any, evidence. But as far as what the authors of this review are talking about, it's like, well, which subset of depressed patients may benefit from this? It's inflammation, It's the patients with high levels of inflammation in their bodies, in their blood, as evidenced by increased levels of inflammatory proteins, including cytokines. Now, how do you determine if you're one of those folks? Well, if you have a disease like arthritis or uh, something like that, it's pretty obvious you should conclude you have higher levels of inflammation in the blood but absent that while you cannot measure levels of cytokines uh, and measuring levels of just the hormone cortisol is not necessarily conclusive you can measure something called C-reactive protein or CRP this is a measure of inflammation in the blood and it's a common blood test it's not A blood test that has to be special ordered and sent out to a specialty lab like the tests for the cytokines would, and uh, your primary care physician can order this. It doesn't have to be a specialist. If the CRP or C-reactive protein level is greater than 5, that's indicative of high levels of inflammation, and therefore, that may be what identifies a subset of depressed patients who would be more likely to benefit from treatment with fish oil or making sure to include a lot of fish in their diet. Much as there's been other research, um, which a lot of which was done at Emory University here in Atlanta, showing that these same patients, the ones with elevated CRP levels higher than 5, are uniquely able to benefit from treatment with uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, or one very specific one. It actually was not a commonly available non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It was an intravenous uh, one similar to Celebrex uh, but uh, a different drug and, again, not an oral one, an intravenous one. Uh, so there's definitely uh, a different subset of patients with depression who have these high levels of inflammation and they already have been shown to benefit uniquely from treatment with non anti-inflammatory drug and why not also uh, would be the ones to benefit uniquely from treatment with fish oil. Now the other thing about all the research on depression and fish oil is—it's been done as a standalone treatment for depression. All the all the research I'm studying it. I mean, I really don't think the effect is powerful enough uh, to treat episodes of depression. Uh, so again, it's sort of a, a misguided approach. Uh, What I was saying about the lack of incidence of, or the decreased incidence, I should say, of bipolar depression in populations that eat a lot of fish, Um, it may be better as a preventative in those cases. But as far as treating depression per se, um, again, I think that's much too high a hurdle, and uh, I'm not surprised the effect isn't there. Uh, I think if it were studied as an add-on treatment to other treatments for depression, that would be more likely to show promising results. For example, a study could be done with people who are in the throes of depression, taking antidepressants, and then some of them you add fish oil to their regimen and others you add a placebo instead of the fish oil. Or how about just psychotherapy? People in psychotherapy on no medication for depression, and then you add the fish oil and psychotherapy, or just a placebo and psychotherapy, and see if there's a difference. Well, in any case, um, until research like that is done, uh, and you know we still are kind of left hanging as to strong evidence for using fish oil. Depression, but uh, again, I think if you can convince your doctor to check your CRP level to see if it's elevated above five, then you should uh, then you know be screened as a, in that way as a candidate for taking fish oil. And uh, if it's below five, I wouldn't necessarily bother. All right. Well, there you have that. And let's move on to our next topic. Ah, Okay. Well, in the past few years or so, if you watch TV, you're bombarded with commercials about testosterone supplements for men, right? And this has become all the rage. Well, here's an article that talks about the effects of testosterone in terms of men's relationships. Now, science and folklore alike have long suggested that high levels of testosterone can facilitate the sorts of attitudes and behavior that make for a less than ideal male parent. It has long been known that among humans and some other species as well, Males who cooperate amicably with their female mates in raising and nurturing offspring often have lower testosterone levels than their more aggressive and occasionally grumpy counterparts. But two University of Notre Dame anthropologists are looking beyond the nuclear family for such effects. Not only spouses, but also other relatives, good friends colleagues, neighbors, and fellow church members can play a role, suggest researchers in an article forthcoming in the journal Hormones and Behavior. The new study focuses on a large representative sample of aging United States men and the ways their testosterone varies when they have emotionally supportive relationships. Compared to other United States men, fathers and married men often have lower testosterone. They think this helps them be more nurturing. Now, this also occurs with other social relationships besides marital ones. The results show that when older men have emotionally supportive relationships with their siblings, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, they also have lower testosterone. Well, we know that men and women with social support have much better health overall, while testosterone affects risks for depression, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and some cancers. Study authors hope their findings connecting these two areas help stimulate new conversations about social support, biology, and well-being. Well, this raises some very interesting questions. Is it that men with lower testosterone levels are more prone to be involved in social, uh, socially supportive relationships? Uh, <clears throat> are they more socially affiliative? Uh, you know, we know women have higher levels of oxytocin, and this is another hormone that is. Known to be associated with uh, increased social affiliativeness, most likely accounting for why women are more that way than men. Oxytocin has been tried even in uh, treating disorders such as autism to see if it will uh, improve social interactions and uh, social awareness of emotions. Uh, So far, it hasn't been found to be helpful. Or is it that when men enter into nurturing social relationships, their levels of testosterone decrease? Interesting. Well, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll come back after that finish up our thoughts about this article and move on to other mental health-related topics. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. and We're talking about Research had found that emotionally supportive relationships that men have are linked to lower levels of testosterone. Now, most of us have seen these commercials, and I mentioned in the earlier segment they promote testosterone as a remedy for symptoms of aging or manopause, or somewhat more technically called andropause. These findings suggests that the social side effects of these testosterone supplements in older men should be carefully studied. In other words, uh, this research found that lower levels of testosterone in older men seem to be correlated with more socially and emotionally supportive relationships. So while testosterone does normally go down with age... The potential social benefits of these lower levels that can accompany uh, low T, as it were, like they talk about on the TV commercial, suggest that it is not all doom and gloom. And likewise, we know that the benefits of these testosterone supplements are not um, all they're cracked up to be either. Uh, There's um, a lot of side effects uh, that are getting more attention as these supplements are becoming more popular and unfortunately they're being prescribed to men who don't legitimately have a need for them just for the sake of trying to chase down uh, strength and virility and sexual potency Uh, cardiovascular side effects being the most serious potential consequences Um, but this is very interesting. I wish there were more research on the whole issue if, of, okay, fine, so if you can correlate emotionally supportive relationships with lower testosterone, you know, what's the chicken, what's the egg? In other words, do the levels decrease when men enter into these relationships, or is it men with lower levels who are just more likely to enter into those relationships? Either way, kind of interesting stuff. All right, well, next up on Psychiatry Today, we're about to have the Thanksgiving holiday in another week or so, and uh, for that holiday, as well as the other holidays we'll be having soon, there are often a lot of high-calorie foods that are consumed, uh, especially sweets, And this research that uh, I decided to talk to you about found that eating sweets forms memories that may control eating habits. Eating sweet foods causes the brain to form a memory of a meal. And this research was done right here uh, in Atlanta. The uh, researchers were at the Georgia State University, And they had help also from the Georgia Regents University and Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center, so other sites in Georgia. The findings were published online in the journal Hippocampus. Now I found it fascinating as an aside that there is a medical journal called Hippocampus. The Hippocampus is a small structure in the temporal lobe of the brain and it's very, very important. In memory, now, brain cells in the dorsal or upper part of the hippocampus uh, is critical for episodic memory, and the, the cells in this area are activated by consuming sweets. Now, episodic memory is the memory of autobiographical events experienced at a particular time and place. In the study, a meal consisting of a sweetened solution, either sucrose, which is common table sugar, or saccharin, an artificial sweetener, significantly increased the expression of what's called the synaptic plasticity marker called activity-regulated cytoskeleton-associated protein, or ARC, in the dorsal hippocampal neurons in rats. In English synaptic plasticity is a process that is necessary for making memories. So what this means, they gave these rats a uh, sweetened solution and they were better able to make memories uh, as evidenced by increased level of this particular protein uh, being found in that part of the brain that's involved in episodic memory. Now the researchers think that this episodic memory, facilitated by this sweetened meal, can be used to control eating behavior. Uh, We make decisions like, I probably won't eat now, I had a big breakfast. Well, we make decisions based on our memory of what and when we ate. The possibility is supported by the researcher's previous work which showed that temporarily inactivating the cells in the dorsal hippocampus following a sugary meal, the period during which the memory of the meal forms, accelerates the onset of the next meal and causes rats to eat more. Forming memories of meals is important to a healthy diet. A London-based study shows that disrupting the encoding of the memory of a meal in humans, such as by watching television, increases the amount of food they consume during the next meal. And researchers have found that people with amnesia will eat again if presented with food, even if they've already eaten because they have no memory of the meal. To understand energy regulation and the causes of obesity, scientists must consider how the brain controls meal onset and frequency. Studies have found that increased snacking is correlated positively with obesity and obese individuals snack more frequently than people who aren't obese. Research also shows that over the past three decades, children and adults are eating more snacks per day and deriving more of their daily calories from snacks, mostly in the form of desserts and sweetened beverages. In the future, the research team would like to determine if nutritionally balanced liquid or solid diets that typically contain protein, fat and carbohydrates Have a similar effect on the expression of this ARC protein in this part of the hippocampus, and whether increases in ARC expression are necessary for the memory of sweet foods. Understandably, a little bit esoteric, but anything that science can tell us about the connections between the brain and how it works and eating. May help stem the tremendous tide of obesity. Uh, It's now up to 38% who are in the country uh, who are overweight or obese. And, uh, you know, the more we can learn about eating behavior and how the brain regulates it, the better. So, no big take home message from this, Um, but uh, certainly, uh, hopefully, will lead to. uh, better answers and perhaps even treatments for obesity in the future, who knows. All right, next up on psychiatry today. A child and adolescent psychiatry update of sorts. <clears throat> Let's wade into the controversy about spanking children, shall we? Well, I thought I saw this article some pretty strong position taken by this one researcher, so I thought I would bring this to you, see what you think of it. But <clears throat> a new uh, book by an expert in the field says that spanking children slows their cognitive development and increases the risk that they will someday engage in criminal behavior. The new book is by Maurice Strauss, founder and co-director of of the Family Research Lab and Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of New Hampshire. It brings together more than four decades of research that makes the definitive case against spanking, including how it slows cognitive development and increases antisocial and criminal behavior. Uh, The book called The Primordial Violence... Uh, shows that the reasons parents hit those they love includes a lot more than just correcting misbehavior. It provides evidence on the effect spanking has on children and what can be done to end it. The book features long-term data from more than 7,000 United States families as well as results from a 32-nation study and presents the latest research on the extent to which spanking is used in different cultures and the subsequent effects of its use on children and on society. Research shows that spanking corrects misbehavior, but it also shows that spanking doesn't work better than other modes of correction, such as time out, explaining, and depriving a child of privileges. Moreover, the research clearly shows that the gains made from spanking come at a big cost. These include weakening the tie between children and parents and increasing the probability that the child will hit other children and their parents and and when they grow up to be adults more likely to hit a dating or marital partner. Spanking also slows down mental development and lowers the probability of a child doing well in school. More than 100 studies have detailed these side effects of spanking, with more than 90% agreement among them, according to Strauss. There is probably no other aspect of parenting and child behavior where the results are so consistent, he says. The authors argue for policy changes that can bring a total end to spanking, including never spank public service announcements, a health warning to go along with birth certificates, and help for parents having problems with their child. Policy and practical implications are explored in most chapters. All right, we're going to take a commercial break right here. When we come back, we'll go over some highlights of this book and uh, talk about its implications and uh, we'll have that and more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
1: I'm Pat Rulo, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, Speak Up and Stay Alive, Patient Safety Radio, now on America's Web Radio, every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. following the doctor's lounge. Find out how you can stay safe during every healthcare or hospital encounter. We go where mainstream stops. Join me Thursday or listen to my podcasts on americaswebradio.com. For more information, visit speakupandstayalive.com.
2: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
1: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com. The pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And we're talking about an author and leading researcher into the effects of spanking children. And uh, the new book is called Prim- The Primordial Violence by Murray Strauss. And. Uh, We talked right before the break about how uh, he and his fellow researchers find overwhelming evidence to support the fact that spanking is not any more effective than less violent forms of discipline and may also promote uh, violent behavior in childhood and in adulthood and even criminal behavior. So let's take a look at some highlights of the book that were in this article about it. The benefits of avoiding spanking, such as the development of better interpersonal skills and higher academic achievement, the link between spanking and behavioral problems and crime, the extent to which spanking is declining and why most parents continue to spank despite the unusually high level of agreement between numerous studies that found harmful effects from spanking. Strauss has a suggestion for the holidays. He says, if you are looking for a gift that will increase your child's chances for a happy and healthful life, including a good job and a violence-free marriage, the, effect, the evidence in this book suggests it would be promising yourself to never spank. Better yet, tell your kids about that promise. It is likely to increase their respect and love for you, and they will also help you stick to it. More than 20 nations now prohibit spanking by parents. There is an emerging consensus that this is a fundamental human right for children. The United Nations is asking all nations to prohibit spanking. Never spanking will not only reduce the risk of delinquency, and mental health problems, it also will bring to children the right to be free of physical attacks in the name of discipline, just as wives gained that human right a century and a quarter ago, Strauss says. That last remark is particularly chilling. Uh, To think that it was 125 years ago, he says, uh, when women were uh, routinely spanked by their husbands um, rather chilling indeed and it gives one pause even if you are someone who comes down on the issue that um, you subscribe to the old adage spare the rod spoil the child widely considered the the foremost researcher in his field Murray Strauss has studied spanking by large and representative samples of American parents since 1969. He has received numerous honors and awards for his research, including Life Fellow of the International Society for Research in Aggression and Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Strauss has been president of three scientific societies, including the National Council on Family Relations, and he has been an advisor to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. He is the author or co-author of more than 200 research articles and 15 books, including Beating the Devil Out of Them, corporal punishment in American families and its effects on children. Well, in reviewing this article with you, it leaves me with the question, and I'm sure some of you have this question too, is this man a dispassionate, objective researcher, or is this someone who is an anti-spanking crusader and will skew the results of his findings to fit his agenda. Um, now I'm trying to be neutral about this because I know this issue brings about very very strong feelings on either side. Uh, I'm not going to advocate for either way of raising kids. Uh, all I will say is that if this research findings are if these findings are valid, uh, it is a very strong argument for not spanking, and perhaps more parents should try it uh, to simply uh, take extremely firm, nonviolent approaches to addressing their children's behavior uh, and see what happens. Well, if you're curious to look at Mr. Strauss's or Dr. Strauss's, doesn't give his credentials, but I'm sure it's probably Dr. Uh, To look at his research, get a pen and paper. Um, There is a URL I'm going to give you that's in this article uh, where you can find much of his research. And actually, while I'm giving it out to you, I will make sure that it works um, as well. But anyway, the the URL is pubpages.unh.edu forward slash and then the tilde, M-A-S number two. The tilde sign is um, what you see over an N in uh, Spanish words that have the sound enye. Um, and it's a squiggly line that goes on, on, on top. You can find it on your computer keyboard all the way on top to the left. Uh, it would be to the left of the number one on your keyboard. So you would hit shift in that key to make that symbol. So again, it's pubpages.unh <coughs> for University of Ham- New Hampshire.edu forward slash tilde M-A-S 2 and the number 2 and actually I'm trying it on my computer right now as we speak and there is a picture of Dr. Strauss Uh, there is a page with all of his papers and publications and uh, a picture of the front cover of the book The Primordial Violence so there you have it if you're passionate about this issue and you're curious, you can take a look on that page and uh, investigate more his research and see for yourself what you think. Next up on Psychiatry Today, we just had Friday the 13th, this past Friday in November, the Friday before this uh, podcast. So I found this article about superstition, thought it might be interesting to look at that. It says, The Power of Magical Thinking, Why Superstitions are Hard to Shake. When sports fans wear their lucky shirts on game day, they know it is irrational to think clothing can influence a team's performance. But they do it anyway. Even smart, educated, emotionally stable adults believe in superstitions that they recognize are unreasonable. In a paper from the University of Chicago, Booth School of Business to be published in an upcoming issue of Psychological Review, Associate Professor Jane Risen finds that even when people recognize that their belief does not make sense, they can still allow that irrational belief to influence how they think, feel and behave. In Believing What We Don't Believe, Acquiescence to Superstitious Beliefs and other powerful intuitions, Risen contends that detecting an irrational thought and correcting that error are two separate processes, not one as most dual system cognitive models assume. This insight explains how people can detect irrational thought and choose not to correct it, a process she describes as acquiescence. Even when the conditions are all perfect for detecting an error, when people have the ability and motivation to be rational, and when the context draws attention to the error, the magical intuition may still prevail. Although the suggestion to decouple detection and correction was inspired by the findings from research on superstition and magical thinking, Risen suggests there are broader applications. Understanding how acquiescence unfolds in magical thinking can help provide insight into how it is that people knowingly behave irrationally in many other areas of life. Certain variables create situations in which intuition is likely to override rational thought. For example, people may acquiesce if they can rationalize their intuition by thinking that a particular situation is special. Acquiescence may also be more likely if the costs of ignoring rationality are low relative to the costs of ignoring intuition. As with people who receive a chain letter, they acknowledge it is irrational to believe that breaking the chain brings bad luck but they still forward the letter. Um, I think they should update that terminology for more modern times. It's no longer chain letters, it's chain emails, right? Well, you get the point. The research has implications for how people make decisions at home, at work, and in public life. It also suggests how to help people fix their errors. Interventions to effectively change behavior need to target the appropriate cognitive processes, which Risen suggests starts by acknowledging that detection and correction are separate processes. Okay, well, so thinking back to last Friday when it was the 13th, uh, did any of you behave extra carefully? Did you side Not to go a certain place for fear that something bad might happen? Uh, Did you see that a mirror might fall and rush to grab it and prevent it from being broken? Did you go out of your way to avoid walking under a ladder? It is amazing how superstitions can alter our behavior even though when pressed, of course, intellectually, we're going to say uh, there's no need to behave in such a way Uh, nonetheless they have very powerful psychological effects well that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast thanks so much for listening i hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time but if not then you need to call dr scott good night and thanks for listening this is America's WebRadio.com,
1: the best in chat radio designed just for you